Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, and we are diving into part two of our native plant series. Uh, last week, uh, we talked with Lane Kenoki, Martha Smith, and Austin Little all about their top three uh, favorite uh, native plants, and then they are back this week to answer our questions all about, once again, native plants. So let's dive right back into it. Well, uh, folks, in addition to learning about our special guests and their favorite native plants, their top three. This is also a question and answer show. And so uh, we do have questions uh, that have come into extension offices, social medias, all over the, all over the place that uh, you might find extension, which might be everywhere. Um, we're trying. Uh, so we have a couple questions and by a couple, I mean a lot about native plants. This is a hot topic. So uh, let's see, can we get Ken? Would you mind kicking us off uh, on this week's round of questions on native plants? I can do that. So our first one comes from McDonough County. There was some debate between native versus native R's. Is it okay to plant native R plants? Are we trying to prevent the genetics from spreading in the wild when it comes to native R's? Okay. Uh, this is something that um, I have been in many conversations with, um, from with some pretty top breeders uh, across the United States. And, you know, the native var was really coined by, I guess, Ellen Armitage started that, playing off cultivar, which just means cultivated variety, which means in some way, shape or form, man has intervened and has resulted in this plant. And there's a lot of debate about should you stay the purest route with just straight species or are these native ours um, just as, as suitable? And I have to totally agree with what Lane was saying. You know, if you want some of these plants in your yard, but the straight species is too large, there are smaller ones. Um, is it a true native? Well, the example that I always give is um, Baptistia indigo. Um, Baptistia australis is the um, blue indigo, the, the false blue indigo. Well, that has been crossed with the yellow, which is spherocarpa. This was done at the Chicago Botanic Garden and they were in their breeding program. And what resulted was one called Prairie Twilight Blues. And it is a strong grower, gets about three and a half feet tall, and it has a bicolor flower of a yellow and a purple because of its parentage. Now, is it native? You're looking at, is this could have been something, I'm not really sure how they had to cross it, but what if this just happened at random in nature and somebody found it? Would that be then considered more native than what was being bred in some of these growing breeding facilities? So I, I don't really have an answer. Uh, it's just, it's an interesting debate. And again, I, you have to go back to what we started with in the beginning of this conversation is what's your definition of it? Um, you know, there's some concerns about, you know, the genetics spreading and going wild. Uh, but I, with this particular plant, I, I haven't seen or heard it happening. I always like to think about, um, you know, my, my own experience in, 
in trying to figure out you know, the answer to this question. Um, I like to think of myself as a native plant purist, but I know that I'm not. Um, and I think a lot of people, um, I think a lot of people are, are almost afraid uh, to, to go with native species, um, especially when you're talking about, um, you know, some of those shrubs that I was talking about, or uh, even some of the forbs that uh, uh, I'll use coneflower again, um, purple coneflower. It's a great native plant. Um, the straight native species, on the other hand, can get to be quite large. Um, I've got uh, several beds um, of, of these coneflowers in my own landscape, uh, and they've gotten to be unruly and very large. Uh, I don't mind that, but I know that a lot of people do. Um, so you've got cultivars like uh, powwow uh, wild barrier or uh, whatever that, that super popular coneflower um, cultivar is. Um, I find those species, which are you know a little bit more dense, compact, uh, they don't spread as easily, you know, this, this, and this. Um, I find those cultivars to be a good way to start people on native plants. Um, you know, they're not as difficult to, um, to maintain. Uh, they, they don't spread as rapidly or, or whatever. Um, so you get somebody interested, you know, by, by introducing them to this, um, this species that is, you know, this uh, well-behaved, you know, sort of, sort of thing, uh, and you get them interested in it. And then you start to uh, see them uh, enjoy the interactions that they get from the insects that, uh, that visit them or the birds that eat the seeds. Uh, and then you start building sort of an awareness of that species echinacea as a whole and then you find yourself starting to find interest in, in the other species of echinacea, like echinacea pallida, um, which is one of my other favorite native species that I didn't talk about today, uh, pale purple coneflower. Um, you know, that's, so, you know, I think it is okay uh, to plant native ours. I like to have a balance uh, between the two for sure, um, but uh, I, I, Again, I think of myself as a, a native plant purist, but uh, I do have several um, native R, quote unquote, native R species in my own gardens. Interesting you chose echinacea because that was the one that what, about 10, 12 years ago, there was just an explosion of every color and every type imaginable. And we were finding, um, there were two main breeders and one was breeding um, Echinacea tennesseensis with Paradoxa, which is the yellow. Mm -hmm. And was doing uh, Purpurea with Paradoxa. And it was very interesting in the literature how the Paradoxa with the um, Purpurea, those native ours really did a lot better. So again, you know, man intervened tried to, you know, do some different crossings and then found out which ones seem to do the best. So mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I know that, I know that a lot of the, the debate against native ours um, comes from, you know, when you alter the color of a flower so much that um, 
pollinators or, or other wildlife that depend on those flowers, um, that they don't recognize them anymore. Um, you know, I, and I don't know, frankly, enough about the science behind all of that to, to speak, you know, too much on it. Um, but that's where I come in with the, there, you, you have to find the balance, um, right? You know, of course, a white coneflower uh, is, is stunning. It's beautiful. Um, but are there, uh, you know, is, is it detrimental to uh, pollinator use? Um, I don't know. <laughs> well, so I'll say the Mount Cuba Center in Delaware just came out with a study of coneflower um, cultivars and stuff, and they specifically looked at pollinators and how some of these native ours compare to the straight species. And I think the most popular one with pollinators was actually one of the white. There's actually more visited sure. more than the straight species. Hmm. I think I think when you're talking about kind of really modifying those flowers when it comes to pollinators, kind of the big concern is when you start getting into the double flowers and stuff. Mm, sure. Where, you get to the point where they can't access that nectar and pollen easily anymore. Some of the colors, yeah, that that can affect it some. And in that that study they did, you can see some of the some of those really tail off um, when it comes to the visitation. But I think the real big concern is when you start modifying that the flower shape and stuff. Sure. But you know, it's also great to know that there are positive um, outcomes of, of this native art conversation. Um, yeah, I, I think that's important for people to know as well. And I think that, and I think people are just now really starting to look at from the pollinator perspective, how do these native artists compare to the straight species? So I think over, over time, we'll see more and more of that stuff coming out. So our next question comes from Warren County and they're asking, is it okay to dig up native plants, plants that you find in the wild? I was going to say no, and I'm pretty sure that it's a really big no. <laughs> I mean, it depends on where in the wild. Is it in your neighbor's, you know, back 40 acres that you had permission to go, you know, dig up whatever. But, you know, you can also ask permission if it's on like a highway right of way. Um, there are locations that you can, but if it's in a, definitely a no, if it's an arboretum or botanic garden, or someone else's property that you didn't ask permission for, um, or state parks and national forests. Those are gonna be notes without permission. Yeah, I, I had Googled that and I found something from the USDA and the US Forest Service. And, you know, it's, first of all, if it's not on property you own, okay, you, you either have to get permission or just don't do it. Um, and there's the issue of de depleting what we have naturally in the wild because plant people like all of us, we want a certain plant and we, we, we wanna have it. And you know the, the concern is, yeah, that's a really cool plant. Yeah, it's native, but if everybody goes out and digs it up, you know, what happens so according to them it's it's a big no but you can kind of circumvent that by working with some of your local agencies like maybe a soil and water or some other places you know that that you know work with these populations more so um, it's an interesting article and um, it, it really talked that it's it's not not a good thing to do 
Yeah, I I find it especially, um, I guess, scary <laughs> for, again, a lack of better terms. Um, I, I love native spring ephemerals. So you've got, you know, your, your trilliums, your Virginia bluebells and all those things. Um, but unfortunately, their, their space, you know, that they have existed in for thousands of years is decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. And, you know, from, from development uh, to, um, you know, and the invasion of species like bush honeysuckle and, and all of those, um, their habitat there in, in the woodland and, and woodland edges is, is just decimated. And so when I'm out there and I see, uh, you know, uh, a prairie trillium, I'll use that as an example. Um, of course, I want that in my yard so badly. Uh, and uh, there, there is some property that my family owns that, that has a, a beautiful stand of it. Um, and I've wanted to go out there so badly and dig up a couple of those and put them in my own yard, but I've been holding myself back because uh, unfortunately, you know, I, I recognize how, uh, how little uh, space they really have left uh, to, to thrive in in the wild. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's my, my no uh, side of it. Um, of course, there are species that are way more populous um, that, that you might have, uh, you might not um, have as much of an issue with, but uh, that's, that's my, my argument for the no. <laughs> All right, our next question comes from Henderson County. Uh, we have very sandy soil on the bluff where we live overlooking the Mississippi River. Even the grass struggles. We read an extension article for ornamental or promoting native plants that are drought tolerant. Um, what would you recommend our, for our ornamental landscape beds? We want it to look tidy, not too wild. Uh, I would recommend, um, I mean, I, I have several species that I would recommend, but just a, a short list. Um, Prairie onion, uh, allium stellatum uh, is, is a good one for those kinds of conditions. Um, Martha's butterfly weed, <laughs> Asclepias tuberosa, uh, you know, it's, it is made for uh, those, dry, uh, those dry conditions. Uh, there's a couple of other milkweeds too. Um, uh, what's the white one? Uh, world uh, milkweed. Um, Asclepius verticillata, uh, I think, is the, the botanical name there. Yeah. Uh, kale purple coneflower um, loves those dry, droughty conditions. Uh, there's some monardas, uh, I think especially spotted bee balm. Uh, I don't know the, I know it's monarda, but I don't know the, the full botanical name on that one. Uh, and then of course, you know, your grass is like big blue stem, uh, little blue stem, uh, prairie drop seed, some of those grassy species that that have the roots that'll go down, uh, you know, 12 to 13 feet into the, the soil, the ones that are made for those drought conditions. You know, and in that situation, I always tell people, look around, what is growing on its own in the area? And maybe you can find of something that's a relative of something you can find or you know a lot of times just take your uh, clues you know from what's in that area you know get out beside your yard and walk walk for a while and see um, that's sometimes your best best bet absolutely yep 
Yeah, I would agree with with everything that you guys, Lane. Yeah, definitely. What's uh, what's growing around, and, and that made me think about what I see growing in some of the toughest conditions on bluffs in southern Illinois. Uh, you see a lot of uh, eastern red cedar. So if they wanted some kind of evergreen, I bet you could get eastern red cedar to grow there. But a lot of times, maybe it's not desirable. But if they wanted a tree, that would be the, the tree that I would recommend. It's a love-hate relationship with eastern red cedar, you know? I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's like you said, Austin, early on in the show, we don't have many evergreens in Illinois, like native ones. Oh, the That's one. the one. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll grow anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> and we we have so many amazing trees and shrubs, and uh, yet I know so few of them because my my uh, my area of expertise, if you want to call it that, would be uh, the wildflowers and grasses. <laughs> so it's great to great to have that the input with uh, with the trees and shrubs there. Yeah. This next question comes from Knox County. They are trying to control bush honeysuckle in their small half acre woodland. Do they need to replace the native, or do they need to replace the bush honeysuckle with native shrubs or small trees? If so, what do you recommend? Well, I, I think any of the plants that we've talked about so far, I mean, would, would, would do. Um, the question was, does she have to replace them with natives? I think, yeah, she's asking. Okay. You don't, no, you don't have to I mean if it's your property but um, you know if they want to go that route there's you know everything that we've talked about today would certainly fit and do okay in Knox County. Um, I know Austin talked about oak leaf hydrangeas. I have them I'm only about 15 miles from Galesburg and I've got several uh, so you know even some and I do have the, uh, the, um, the amethyst berry so even those that were presented as being southern plants, they do well up here too. We've got, we have species of viburnum that are native here, right, Austin? Yeah, yeah, there are native viburnums that, that I, have, I have a short list here of uh, good options for trying to get control of the, the bush honeysuckle. So number one though, if you're wanting to get rid of bush honeysuckle, you have to adopt some of these kind of extreme controls. You, you're, you're either needing to grind them down, dig them out, burn them out, uh, you know, something extreme. And you have to reiterate that every year while you're trying to promote these other uh, desirable plants. But one that, you know, you mentioned, Lane, is that red chokeberry. That's a good one. Um, but it's, it's usually not just one. You're going to need to kind of have a mix. Uh, Spicebush, inkberry, that's kind of a evergreen or a broadleaf evergreen. That gray dogwood that I mentioned, uh, winterberry, so and and then viburnums as well. So things that are going to just take over, outcompete them, take out any kind of light that they're going to be able to get, just kind of oh, oh, you know push out their their resources. Um, while while you're still going in there and cutting them back, treating them every year, uh, and and you probably once it's there, it's never totally gone. You know, it's it's an iterative thing. Yes, yeah, spice bush is a great one. Uh, that that yellow fall color, and um, of course, me and me and my pollinators, uh, the spice bush, uh, swallowtail, 
it's it's a really beautiful uh, beautiful uh, native shrub. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a book that uh, they might be interested in. It's put out by the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens, and it's um, Native Alternatives to Invasive Plants. And they talk about, you know, if you're looking for a replacement for that particular honeysuckle, this is what we recommend. And it's, it's a good place to start. And um, I can, Chris, I can get you the information if you want to uh, share it. I was just making a note to make sure we include that in the, uh, the description down below. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a great resource. Um, I've got some of their stuff uh, in, our, in our office. All right, our next question comes from Peoria County. I have a shaded hillside or, and woodland forest uh, that is eroding away into a creek. What can I plant to help retain the soil? Um, yeah, those, those are tough conditions. Uh, to, uh, to stabilize that, that kind of soil on that kind of a slope, um, you know, you've, you've got to establish some sort of a ground cover, um, but it's, it's not just a ground cover. Um, you know, you've got to have some, some shrubs and stuff in there, I, I would think. Um, I, with, with my limited knowledge of, of, you know, that kind of condition, you know, I'd be thinking about different sedges uh, to, to give you some ground cover there. Uh, to hopefully prevent, you know, at least some of that uh, that outer layer erosion that's happening. Um, I, Pennsylvania sedge, uh, rosy sedge, or two that are, you know, a little bit more common. Um, you can do uh, different species of ferns um, in in those shady hilly conditions. Can you think of 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 others, Martha or Austin or anyone else? Well, it's. It <laughs> It's it, no that that is that is a tough spot, and I'm trying to think of you know what would do well with more of a fibrous root system, and almost to the point where you would want something um, rhizomatous or something that's going to spread because that's going to hold help hold your soil in place, and that's where everything that's coming to mind is not a native. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, there are there are native sedges that that will spread like that, um, mm -hmm. but the the issue potentially with you know the the erosion problem that we're talking about, um, their their root systems aren't super deep, uh, and so I'd think that you'd need to have, you know, bring in a species like spice bush, <laughs> that that nice wood uh, woodland shrub, um, to to give you at least some. You know areas where you've got some roots that are that are really taking uh, taking root. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, getting getting their feet really deep into the soil. And you know, there comes a time where you know you have that situation, and you are trying to make it work for you. And in that situation, if they really want that look, then they might have to come in and try to. Uh, do some walls or, you know, to hold retaining that soil there um, because, you know, one good gully washer, you know, it, it could, you know, all go, but if there's a, a brace or something that's holding it back. So there does come a time when you have to think, okay, what's, how can I achieve this um, and do it best for the plants? 
I'll only add that these are, well, these are all very situational, but you know, even this, especially mm -hmm. as Martha mentioned, sometimes you have to invest in structures and uh, specific erosion control uh, built like built structures. Um, mm -hmm. And I will just add, as I learned in studying landscape architecture and soil engineering, geotechnical stuff, gravity will usually, well, well let's just say gravity will always win eventually. Um, and mm -hmm. so you can engineer systems to hold soil temporarily. Um, if, you, if you have a home or something that is on the top of the slope or on the bottom of the slope to hold that soil temporarily, but eventually it's gonna need some type of intervention, uh, human intervention to restabilize that, that soil structure. So it's always going to be something that will have to occur. Some, something will have to be input, input there. Our next question is from Cass County. Three of four of their dogwoods seem to be experiencing the same thing. And they're wondering if they're wondering if it is a disease. The leaves come on hard and brittle with litter, little blooming during the spring. They identify the trees as being not old, but established. There are also many lower branches that don't produce foliage at all. Their house faces north faces towards the north and the trees to the east of their house. Do you guys have any suggestions or ideas of what's going on? Um, again, with dogwood, I and she says lower branches, I can only assume she's talking about flowering dogwood or they're talking about flowering dogwood. So again, uh, yeah, a little more information, you know, what type are you exactly um, dealing with? Um, they tend to be a somewhat understory tree, so it sounds like where they have it, it's it's seems to be getting the best sun. But um, I haven't heard of the leaves coming out more brittle. Uh, uh, that that's a new one for me. Yeah, I'm unsure on that one too. That might be a that might be a good picture and plant clinic clinic uh, question. <laughs> So. Okay, I can look up. I can look up cornus. Like I said, I'm, I'm assuming it's cornus florida, but I'd, I'd say when in doubt, we refer them to the U of I plant clinic. <laughs> we you just read my it. mind. Yep. Yeah. It, could, it could be anything. On older, yep. dogs, sometimes the lower branches die back. It's just natural. Tree, mm -hmm. then that probably shouldn't be happening. And if it's on all four, yeah, it's happening. So. We also don't know the weather extremes it's it's experienced over the past couple of years. Was it, you know, hot, 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 dry summer followed by a wet fall and spring? I mean, all those things, those are the things that a lot of homeowners don't look at is you've got to take in the whole picture, not just what you are seeing right now, but what are the events that have led up and all of the stressors that are on that plant. That's why it's, it's, it's really being a detective sometimes to try to figure these things out. Yeah, the, the hard brittle leaves it kind of brought to mind the idea of scorch. Um, possibly something's happening with that vascular tissue where the plant can't get water. Rot, mm -hmm. fungus, something occurring within there. So I would mm -hmm. say if that happened last spring, it's a wait and see game to see will that tree leaf out in those same spots? If not, that might have been kind of that, that final kind of just expulsion of life for that tree in, in those areas. Also, with 
flowering dogwood, the bud they have is really what they call a naked or exposed bud. So if we, I'm not familiar with the weather of Cass County, but um, a lot of times up here, if we have a really cold, cold winter, those buds just die off. Cass County is north of me, so it's north of Morgan County. So in, at least in, in Jacksonville, all the dogwoods had flowers. It is, okay. Yeah, up here it's sporadic. At least in my, in my, on my block, <laughs> they had their flowers. All right, and our last question comes from Morgan County. So this is a question I got, and I want I gave him an answer, but I want everybody else's opinion on this. Um, so we had a client calling, hoping that they may, we may have a suggestion um, uh, for a predator to control aphids on their milkweed. Um, they're seeking information uh, proactively for aphid control in late May and June for a rare milkweed species. I don't know which species it is. Um, they liked it to be more of a predator bug than a chemical controlled as they don't want to harm the milkweeds. I, I get this question a lot, especially when the monarch butterflies, you know, the caterpillars are emerging. And yeah, I've seen the caterpillars just chomp right through aphids and, and whatever. So um, if it's detrimental to the plant, you know, before that stage, um, I don't know. Are there are there predator controls? I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, I mean everything everything that I know or understand or have heard is that the best way to to deal with this is to do it manually. You know, it's like by hand do it, pushing um, them off, or or using like a, a mild dish soap solution, which probably won't harm the plant, but uh, can harm you know, any, any monarchs that are on it. I, I have no idea what the, what the right uh, answer is for this one, if there is a right answer. It could get some ladybugs. That's what I was, I was wondering about that, but I don't know how, I don't know. <laughs> can you control it, that very easily? Right. Can, can, <laughs> can this little tray of ladybugs just stay on this one plant and not fly away? <laughs> Is the larva of the lady beetle, is that what it is? Both What's the adults it? and larva will feed on them. A aphid lions, what are those? Lace wings. Lace wings, okay. There's also parasitoid wasps that will feed on flies. They'll lay their eggs inside of them and be like alien and pop out when they're ready to uh -huh. emerge. And there's flies that'll attack. There's a lot of different insects that'll attack aphids. If you've got this in a, where you've got abundant flora resources, you're probably going to have those predators there already assuming you're not spraying everything your surface flies here those larvae will feed on aphids cool many again that the squishing mm -hmm. take all, all your frustrations on the aphids and <laughs> them. so like that and and you could get a spray them off with a steady stream of water a lot of times that'll do a good job of, of managing them too i've i've heard vegetable gardeners using milkweed as a nurse crop to raise predators to take care of pests on their vegetable garden. They leave the aphids on the nurse crop, on the milkweed. So then there's always a steady food supply there. I've seen that happen. It was a Texas A&M actually, they did a little video on that. So interesting. Cool. Well, that was, that was a lot of very wonderful information. We might have to do a part one, part two. I might have to split this puppy up here, folks. Um, but we had a lot of so much good information. Um, and I feel like we could keep going. But 
I can't, I can't pay you guys anymore. I mean, I'm just, I've, I've already wrote the checks. So yeah. <laughs> checks in the mail. It is in the mail. Um, but I just, I want to thank uh, our special guests for being here today. Austin, Martha Lane. Thank you. Thank all of you so much from, from Southern Illinois, East Central, West Central Illinois. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you. It's fun. Excellent. Well, we will have them on again, folks. Don't you worry about that to talk more about native plants and maybe to get the top 10 of their favorites. Uh, so we will see about that. The Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. A special thanks goes to Ken and Katie for being our co-hosts to guide us through the questions that we get every single week. So thank you, Ken and Katie. Thank you guys for joining us. And I think I like the six. This is fun. Have more people for a party. It's very Brady Bunchy, yes. <laughs> Do nine next time. There you go. <laughs> yes, thank you, uh, Lane and Austin and Martha and <clears throat> Chris and Katie. Thank you as always, and let's do this again next week. Oh, we shall do this again next week. We will be talking with uh, Dr. Michael Ward with the Illinois Natural History Survey about bird nesting boxes, birding, and citizen science projects that we can do with birds. So listeners, thank you for doing what you do best and that is listening, or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching, and as always, keep on growing.